Our scripture reading today is from 2 Samuel chapter 15, verses 1 through 12. After this, Absalom got himself a chariot and horses and 50 men to run before him. And Absalom used to rise early and stand beside the way of the gate. And when any man had a dispute to come before the king for judgment, Absalom would call to him and say, From what city are you? And when he said, Your servant is of such and such a tribe in Israel, Absalom would say to him, See, your claims are good and right, but there is no man designated by the king to hear you. Then Absalom would say, Oh, that I were a judge in the land. Then every man with a dispute or a cause might come to me, and I would give him justice. And whenever a man came near to pay homage to him, he would put out his hand and take hold of him and kiss him. Thus Absalom did to all of Israel who came to the king for judgment. And so Absalom stole the hearts of the men of Israel. And at the end of four years, Absalom said to the king, Please let me go and pay my vow, which I have vowed to the Lord in Hebron. For your servant vowed a vow while I lived in Ge- at Geshur and Aram, saying, If the Lord will indeed bring me back to Jerusalem, then I will offer worship to the Lord. The king said to him, Go in peace. So he arose and went to Hebron. But Absalom sent secret messengers throughout all the tribes of Israel, saying, As soon as you hear the sound of the trumpet, then say, Absalom is king at Hebron. And when with Absalom went 200 men from Jerusalem who were invited guests, and they went in their innocence, and they knew nothing. And while Absalom was offering the sacrifice, he sent for Hethbethel, the Gilanite, and David's counselor from his city, Gilo. And the conspiracy grew strong, and the people with Absalom kept increasing. Lord, we thank you for this time to gather together to hear your word, to fellowship, um, to just be set apart, um, and to honor you. I pray that this time would honor you. We ask that you would... Uh, send your spirit here that um, that Mark would uh, speak under uh, what it, what is ordained by you and not um, out of anything that is selfish or um, anything that is not of you. We just pray that you would help us to remember that um, you are in control in all situations as this passage uh, shows and we just pray that that would be our comfort and that we would uh, have assurance in that truth. Amen. Amen. Well, good morning. Good to see you all here this morning. Uh, One quick question. Um, uh, How many of you have ever had poison ivy? Raise your hand. Wow. How many of you have never had poison ivy? You need to get out more. Holy cow, we live in Minnesota for crying out loud. Go up north, right? Start playing in the woods a little bit. Well, then for the half or the part of you, or I guess a small percentage of you who has actually had poison ivy, do the rest of you know what poison ivy does? Yes? Okay. Which is why you've avoided it. You've just been smarter, right? All right. So poison ivy, you get into it and it causes a rash, right? It causes this itch. Well, there are three possible solutions to relieving poison ivy itch. I'm going to get there. Hold on. You guys are all curious, right? Where is he going with this? Okay, well, first of all, you can ignore the itch, right? You can just ignore it. You can scratch the itch, or you can use medication, to lessen the itch and then get rid of the infection that's with it, right? Those are really the three basic ways of getting rid of poison ivy. Well, the first one, ignoring the itch, will make you lose your mind, right? 
The second actually is a temporary relief, but it spreads the infection and the itch and only makes things worse. The third will remove the infection and it will help remove the itch, though it may take some time for the body to fully heal. And so it is for those within the church when it comes to falsehood. That's a very general falsehood, very general statement. We may desire to know the truth, but the infection of falsehood can actually lead us astray. And so what, what do we do with these falsehoods within the, within the church? How do we identify and deal with the infection that it brings? Well, we can ignore the infection, but that's only going to cause more problems for the future of the church, right? We can scratch the itch by listening to what we want to hear and what makes us most comfortable, but that in the end only causes the infection to spread and the itch to increase. Or we can take the proper medicine, and in this case, the truth of God as found in His Word, and it may take effort and time on our part, but the church, in the end, will be healthier and stronger should any future infection arise. In 2 Samuel 15, the people of Israel use Absalom to scratch their itching ears. He plays the part of a king and judge. He steals the hearts of the people away from David and to himself, eventually proclaiming himself as king. And instead of healing the nation after David's sinful failures, which were many and were big, instead of healing the nation, the scratching spreads the infection of falsehood. So it's been seven years from the beginning of chapter 15. It was seven years since Amnon had raped his sister Tamar. And though Absalom was now residing in Jerusalem and was reconciled, quote-unquote reconciled with the king, Absalom was not satisfied. It seems he wanted more. He wants to be king. And so he begins to play the part of king shortly after his reconciliation with David. And this is why I use reconciliation very loosely because of this chapter. After his reconciliation with David, Absalom gets himself a chariot and horses with 50 men to run before him. Now, this is something that kings did in those days. This is how they acted. It was a representation of their greatness and their power. Look, I've got a tank, basically. I'm coming in on a tank, and I've got a small army walking in front of me. Look how great I am. So Absalom and his entourage would rise early and make their way to the gate of the city of Jerusalem because that's where anyone who wanted to see the king, they had to go through this gate to get there. Absalom would get personal with these people. He'd be asking them about their home villages. Why are you here? What is your your disagreements or what is your issue that you're bringing before the king? And then he would twist their situation. Apparently, David didn't have the time to see everybody 
who came to see him for judgment. He's one man running a whole nation. This is very similar to Moses in the wilderness. And his father-in-law says, this is too much. You need to delegate. Well, David seemingly was not delegating. And so people who wanted to come before him weren't always weren't always able to get in to see him. And so then Absalom, knowing this, would say, see, your claims are good and right, but, but there's no man designated by the king to hear you. Oh, that I were judge in the land. And then every man with a dispute or cause might come to me and I would give them justice. Which on the surface of it, you can't have a dispute and have both sides get justice. If you really think about it. Absalom was using their concerns and David's inability to be able to see them to manipulate them into liking him more than David. Now, I try to figure out a different word than liking, but that's basically what he's doing. I want them to like me enough that they look to me and not to David. Basically saying, oh, if only I were the one on the throne and then I would judge in your favor and give you your justice that you deserve. He's itching their ears, or maybe I should say he's scratching their itching ears. He's offering a solution to their problems, but in reality, he's actually only tickling. And he's increasing the infection of disillusionment and frustration with David. And he does this for four years. We're not told, but the question is, where was David in this? Something must have been like, something's not right with this boy. And David did nothing. For four years, he slowly steals the heart of the people of Israel. Absalom is a thief, which is why the word stolen is used. He's a simple thief. He takes something that doesn't belong to him, the hearts of the people of Israel. Their hearts belong to the anointed king of the Lord. You know, the man who was anointed by God himself. The people are longing for a resolution to their problems. They desire justice from their king, but when they don't get what they desire or are unable to get an immediate answer from the king, they turn to one who promises to give them the desires of their hearts. Because who doesn't want to be said, be told, oh, you're right, and get what you want? All they have to do is follow Absalom. He sees that the only way to get what he wants, the throne, is to steal the hearts of the people away from his father. You see, Absalom doesn't really care about Israel. He doesn't care that they receive justice. He only cares about himself being made king. He is selfish. He is self-centered, in which we looked at last week. He was obsessed with himself and how beautiful he was, how handsome he was. He was all about him. But his words didn't say that. And people were pulled in by his words. After four years of playing the part of king and judge, 
stealing the hearts of the people away from David, Absalom finally makes his move. If there's anything we've learned about Absalom, he's a patient man. Patient man. He waits two years after his sister's rape to kill his brother. And then he runs away to his grandfather's house for three years until he finally then comes back to Jerusalem waits another two years before he comes before David, and now it's another four years. That's a long time to be waiting to get his plan in motion. And so he asks, after four years, he asks David for permission to travel to Hebron in order to fulfill a vow that he had made at least least six years earlier. He says, if the Lord will indeed bring me back to Jerusalem, then I will offer worship to the Lord. Now, there's a few things that smell bad about this request and this vow. First, he's been in Jerusalem for six years, and a vow is supposed to be fulfilled as soon as possible. So if his vow was, should I come back to Jerusalem? Should you bring me back to Jerusalem? I will worship you. Why did he wait six years to do this? He should have done it immediately. Why all of a sudden the desire to fulfill this vow? Second, this vow sounds very familiar to Jacob's vow at Bethel. Does that come to mind at all? When Jacob has the dream about the angels ascending and descending uh, from the stairway into heaven and from heaven. And in that vow, Jacob says this. He says, if God will be with me and will keep me in this way that I go, and will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear so that I come again to my father's house in peace, then the Lord shall be my God. Now, this vow of Jacob and the vow of Absalom, it sounds really holy, doesn't it? It sounds really, really good. But in reality, it is nothing but self-centered fulfillment. If God does this for me, then I will do this for him. That's not godly. That is not the way to think about God. If God gives me the desires of my heart, then I will worship him and make him my God. That's what Jacob says. In the case of Absalom, if God brings me back to Jerusalem, then I will worship him. But not before. Not before. God is worthy of worship whether we receive good or bad. David knew this. All you got to do is read his psalms. But Absalom was far from the holiness of David, despite all of David's sins. Third, Hebron is an interesting place to fulfill this vow. Because if he wants to make a sacrifice before God, where is the tabernacle at this point but in Jerusalem? So why does he need to go to Hebron if God is in Jerusalem? Well, one could argue that he simply wanted to worship God in his hometown. That was the place where he was born. But there's something else that should have tipped David off to Absalom's true intentions because Hebron was also where David was crowned king of all of Israel. He chose that city on purpose. And it was more than just nostalgia. This is 
This is how I would say If it smells like fish, it's probably a fish. And this is really fishy. David ignores it or doesn't catch it. Everything leading up to this moment screams, Absalom wants to be king. He's acting the part. He's speaking the part. How long before he takes the next step of rebellion? And guess what? That's exactly what happens. He calls in his favor to all of those that he spoke to at the gate. Remember? There's a reason why he was doing that. And he says to them, as soon as you hear the sound of the trumpet, then say, Absalom is king in Hebron. And he also deceives 200 of those who were loyal to David into coming with him. They had no idea. They thought they were just going to go have a party or something. They were completely innocent in the fact. But it creates this illusion that David is losing the support of those who were closest to him. This is all premeditated. And the final blow comes when David's trusted and respected counselor, Ahithophel, betrays David in support of Absalom. And so... At Hebron, Absalom becomes the self-anointed king of the Lord's people. The itch has been scratched, but instead of healing, the infection only spreads. The conspiracy grew, and it had dire consequences, or will have dire consequences for David and for Absalom, and especially for the nation as a whole. Now, what does this teach us today? If David is meant to point us to Christ, which we have said over and over again, hopefully in a positive way he teaches us to Christ, but even when David sins and he fails, it's still to point us to Christ because Christ is the better Messiah. He is the better anointed king of the Lord. So if David is meant to point us to Christ and Israel is meant to point us to the church, the people of God, those who repent and believe in the salvation of the Lord through his king, then Absalom is meant to point us to the acute danger posed to the church. False teachers, false believers, sinful desires, and an enemy who will stop at nothing to destroy God's people. So it's not just a one-and-done thing. It's not just teachers. It's all of those falsehoods combined into one. Turn with me to 2 Timothy chapter 4. So grab your Bibles, grab your Bible app. 2 Timothy chapter 4. I'm going to start in verses 3 and 4. I want you to hear, this is Paul writing to Timothy at a church. He's pastoring a church, and he's giving him advice. He gives him a warning, actually. So 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 3 and 4. This is what he says. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but have itching ears. They will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. See, Paul is speaking of those within the visible church, those who gather with and serve alongside the true redeemed church. These are people that Timothy had a relationship with, those that he knew well, and Paul says, be on guard because some of those people will turn away from the, true, the words of the true king and listen to the seductive and siren-like words of a false king, like Absalom. 
Be careful, he says, because this false king will suit their own passions. He will tell them what they want to hear, and he will steal their hearts away from the true king, Jesus Christ. Now here you have to make a distinction. We have to make a disclaimer here. It's not that these people whom Paul speaks of ever really belonged to Christ. You could turn to the book of Hebrews. There's a whole chapter or two on people who look the part, but they never really were believers to begin with. They are what the Bible calls goats or wolves. They are those who have, and these are the words of of the book of Hebrews, there are those who have tasted Christ. They're like one who, have you ever had, have you ever made fresh bread in your house? And you walk in, and everything seems to be food with me, doesn't it? I'm sorry, I have issues. But you walk, but if you walk into the house and there's fresh bread, it's almost like you could taste it, right? But you're not really tasting it, right? You're just smelling it, and your mouth starts to water, and it's like, oh, like a fresh cinnamon rolls that I make at Christmas time. We make it once a year for a reason, but oh my gosh, it makes, uh, Katie makes sourdough bread, and when I walk in from work and I'm like, I love that woman, because you could taste it, right? You could taste, I love her more than because of that, but you could taste that bread, but you're not really physically tasting it, right? Or it's like going to Costco and getting a sample. You're just getting a taste of it. You're not really buying the whole product, right? You're just getting a taste. They've gotten a whiff of Christ's blessings. They've taken a small bite of his goodness, but have yet to fully eat and drink of him. That's a, that's a beautiful word picture of what it means to have Christ or to just taste Christ. These are those who turn away from listening to the truth that only Christ satisfies, that only Christ saves, that only Christ gives eternal life and hope and peace and joy and blessing. Tasting that and then going, yeah, no, I'm going to go get something else. They turn away from listening to the truth and they wander off into myths like Absalom is the anointed king of the Lord. They wander off into falsehoods which deceive and they steal their hearts away from the truth of the word of God. Jesus Christ is the true anointed king of the, of the Lord and no one else can take his place. That's the truth. So how should we as the church, the believers, because let's be honest, we can be deceived at times too. It doesn't make us lose our salvation, but we can wander off until we're finally like, this isn't quite right, and we come back on to the path of truth. Well, how do we respond as the church then to these dangers? Well, the beauty is that Paul actually gives the answer to Timothy in verses 1 and 2. So read 1 and 2 with me. He says, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is judge, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, and this is the key, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching." Preach the word. Preach the word of God. Preach this book. 
preach the truth. Now you go, well, Mark, that's your job. Yeah, no, it is on Sunday mornings. But what about Monday morning when you go into work? I hate to say it, I ain't going to follow you around everywhere. I can't, and you don't want me to. This is a call to every believer. Preach the word of God. Preach the truth. Your words, my words. This is the beauty. We have no power. Our words have no power to save souls to eternal life. Our words have no power to change hearts and to change lives. But this word does. This word does. That's why we preach the word every single Sunday. That's why we go through books of the Bible, verse by verse, word by word, because it is the word of truth that saves. And it doesn't always tickle our ears. Be ready to preach the word. Be ready to preach the truth of the gospel message in every situation, whether good or bad. And if you say, which... This really bothers me, this statement. Preach the gospel, and if necessary, use words. Okay, my filter's not working. That's, that's dumb, I'm sorry. It's not biblical. It is not biblical. Are we to live the gospel life? Yes. Is it a witness? Yes. But if I'm a good person, it makes no difference then whether I'm a believer or not, because they don't know you're a really nice guy. Yeah, I know. Do they know that I'm a Christian? Yes, they will know that we are Christians by the way we love one another. But they will also know because in that love, we will be preaching the gospel to one another and reminding yourselves of the truth. And so he says, be ready whether good or bad, to preach the word of God. Know and preach the truth. He says reprove, which means condemn falsehoods, condemn false thinking. He says rebuke. That means calling them out. It doesn't just say, well, this is a falsehood. It says what you are believing is false. It leads to death, not life. And then exhorting, which means urging them to follow the truth of God's word. That's a falsehood. You're believing falsehood. Let me tell you what the truth actually is. The truth that gives you life, not death. Those in the church, those who proclaim to love and follow the king, we are to preach the truth to one another, especially, but those around us too, with complete patience and teaching. That's where I said, if, you, if, you, if you've got poison ivy, it doesn't heal in a day. If we believe falsehoods, man, we got to put the ointment of the truth of God on us constantly. And with patience and endurance, teaching the complete and total truth of God. Teaching the truth of the word of God. Like David with the wise woman at Tekoa, we looked at this last week, this wise, I use that loosely again too. She was not all that wise because she took scripture out of context. She deceived David. So like David, if the people of Israel had actually turned to the truth of the word of God 
Absalom would have been exposed as a charlatan, a fake, an imposter. A man who desired to be the self-anointed king of Israel and was not the anointed king of the Lord. And so it is with us in the church today. If we turn to the truth of the word of God, all false teachers, all false believers would be exposed. Sinful rebellion, even in our own heart, against God would be revealed and even the acts of the enemy would be unmasked. If we are so soaked in the truth of God, when falsehood comes, it smells funny. And if it smells like a fish, it's a fish. We need to make sure. Is this, is this right? This is, it doesn't seem right. I need, I need to go to God's Word to see if, is that actually what it, is that actually what it says? Here's Paul's words to the church in Rome, in Romans chapter 12, verse 2. He says, do not be conformed to this world. Do not let the world scratch that itch. Don't, do not let society or the falsehoods of this world to scratch and give you the desires of your heart. Instead, he says, be transformed by the renewal of your mind. That's the thinking that by testing that you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Our hearts, even as Christians, are too easily stolen away from Christ. We are too easily distracted and swayed by those who scratch and tickle our itching ears. The Word of God reveals the good and acceptable and perfect will of God. How do we renew our minds? By reading His Word, by studying His Word, by preaching the Word to one another, by speaking and engrossing ourselves in the truth. If you're spending more time reading commentaries than you are the Word of God, that's a problem. Commentaries are good, but they're a tool. And if you've ever read commentaries enough, you realize there are some really, really bad commentaries out there. If you were relying upon me to teach you the truth, well, that's my job, that's my call, and I hope I'm preaching the truth, but don't take my word for it. Don't walk home and say, well, Mark said this, so it must be true. Ha! Then you're relying upon me for your salvation. Don't do that. It's going to lead you down a road that you don't want. Everything I say must be put against the word of God. And if I am false, ignore me and listen to the word of God. Now, we can misunderstand the word, and that's where we sharpen one another. We meet for small groups or Bible studies or one-on-one. We have conversations over coffee or hot chocolate if you're a kid. (laughs) As families, you're sitting down together and you're sharpening one one another and you're You're teaching your children or your grandchildren and or even children teaching their parents and their grandchildren. It can happen. It does happen all the time. As long as it's grounded in the word and the truth of God. This is what reveals. Do we want to know what God wants? Let's go here. Now, he doesn't say, who should you marry? 
Well, Mark, according to Hezekiah chapter 5, he says, you need to marry Katie. He doesn't say that. There is no Hezekiah, by the way. That's the whole point. But he does say, what kind of spouse should you be looking for as a Christian? You should be looking for one who loves me, God, loves my word, wants to grow in my relationship with them. Beauty is fleeting, but a godly woman is one that you hold on to for the rest of your life. Are you a believer? Are you a child of God? Have you repented of your sins? Have you put your full trust and hope in the blood of Christ to cleanse you of all of your sins before God because you realize that you can't do enough to satisfy Him? You need Christ. Then never, ever stop reading and studying and hearing and speaking and striving to obey the Word of God. The Word of God is our greatest defense against falsehoods, both within and outside the church. The Word of God has the power to transform lives and expose the infection of falsehood. The Word of God has the power to prevent our hearts from being stolen away from Christ. Believe and trust each and every single day Believe and trust in the one whom his word points and he will change the desires of your heart. Notice he didn't say he will give you the desires of your heart. He will change the desires of your heart. He won't scratch your itch. He might need to cut it out but he will heal the infection of falsehood that has come and made its home in your heart because he will give you himself. He makes us his. And he gives us life, the life that we've always wanted. If you've never put your trust in Christ, you are seeking in all the wrong places for your desires, for the desires of your heart to be met. And like Absalom, I'll be honest with you, those things that promise never give you what they ask. Or maybe I should say, they might do it for a little bit. They might figuratively talk to you like Absalom, rub your back a little bit, and oh, if you put your trust in me, I'll, I'll give you everything you want. And in the end, all you find is pain and misery and death, loneliness, dissatisfaction, and the desires of your heart aren't met. If you believe in Christ, if you repent of your sin, and this is where for us, even as believers, to be reminded, if we've done that, he changes us and he gives us life. And he gives us, in a sense, the desires of our heart because our desires are now his. He changes us. Put your trust in him. Tomorrow, who knows what you're going to meet? Who knows what hardship, 
Who knows what goodness, who knows what falsehood you're going you're gonna to meet. But in the end, it's all the same. Go to the Word. Trust in the Word. Turn to Him. And He will give life. Because unlike David, He will always meet with those who come to Him. Always. Father, I pray for us as Your people that You would encourage us, that You would use your word and use one another to reprove and to rebuke and to exhort us father that we would fall on your word that we would constantly be going to your word that we would live it and speak it and think it and god as we're striving to do that that you would be constantly changing us more and more into the man or the woman that you desire for us to become that our heart would be more like yours, that we will trust your truth more and more and more. Give us discernment and wisdom as we face falsehoods in our own heart and falsehoods in the world around us and the falsehoods in the people around us. Help us to stand on your truth. And I pray, Father, for those in our lives, even at work, at home, family and friends and neighbors, those people that you have put in our lives, Father, that don't know you, that are striving to fulfill the desires of their heart and, and it's like ash in their mouth. It's so dissatisfying and they're constantly going everywhere but you, that you would soften their hearts, that you would give us as your people an opportunity to point them to the truth. Not just be nice people, not just to help them, but to give them the word that gives life eternal. Your word, your son, the gospel message. Father, may you use us as your people to do this with confidence and with courage. Help us, Father, to stand firm on you and not ourselves as your people here at Elm Creek. We ask this in your name. Amen. Let you stand as we sing our final song together.